Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 1, the New Covenant. We're in uh, Luke chapter chapter 1, and we've been there since August, and trying to get to the place of uh, teaching about the birth of Jesus, and we're going to do that, and it looks like it's going to hit pretty close to Christmas, which is very providential, I would say. Um, we're going to, we are, most of the first chapter deals with the pregnancy, both of Elizabeth and of Mary, and then the birth of John the Baptist, and here we are with John the Baptist being born, his father is going to be speaking to us here. We're all the way to the last part of, of Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and following, and I want us to read it here, and he's going to make such a, uh, such a statement of theology here and so much, so much stuff, and one of the reasons why we've had such a hard time getting through the first chapter is because there's so much that we can't just let go. Uh, the Holy Spirit assumes we know a lot of this stuff, and, and uh, my experience is in most cases we don't. And so as we progress in the New Testament, we want to make sure that we have some, some, some solid foundation underneath us. And Zacharias, being a priest, one of his jobs is to teach the Bible. So you would expect that when a guy like that is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to spout some pretty heavy theology, and that's exactly what he does. So we looked last time at the, the Davidic line, the, the covenant with David, and now we're going to be considering uh, the new covenant together. But let's, he mentions another covenant here as well. So let's read it together. Verse 67 says that his father, Zacharias, that's John the Baptist's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So he's at his son's circumcision, but he doesn't say much about his son because it's all about who his son represents, right? And who, who Zacharias as the priest has been representing. And so, so it's so, uh, so important that we grasp that. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Again, she's talking about Jesus here. She's not talking about his son. This, this one of the line of David, this king, and we talked about it last time, although we didn't have notes. And the notes are in your bulletin, by the way, from last week. We went over a lot of verses, and I had several of my church members saying, where are the notes? We don't care if you're preaching. We just want the notes. <laughs> they didn't say that. Raised up a horn of David, in his servant David, and he, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies, quoting the Old Testament, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and remember his holy covenant. It's the second covenant he's going to mention here. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father, the Abrahamic covenant it's called, to grant us that we would be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of our sins. There's the third covenant he mentions, the covenant, the new covenant. We're going to be spending our time talking about that this morning. Because of the tender mercies of our God, you know, what's, what's the use of a Davidic covenant or Abrahamic covenant if you aren't forgiven of your sins, right? It's the, it's the biggest point. Which this sunrise, as he says, from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And certainly that is uh, our great need. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child, now he's finished with what he's saying, he's talking about John the Baptist, continued to grow and became strong and become strong in the spirit. He lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel, which was only uh, probably a couple of years. So this, this, this statement, this this. Uh, uh, diatribe that, that Zacharias pronounces here, this praise with three major points, these three major covenants. When we looked at one of them last time, this the Davidic covenant that God is going to bring a king 
from the line of David. Since he's from David, he's going to be Jewish. Uh, he's going to reign on David's throne, which is in Jerusalem. Uh, and he's going to be eternal. So he can't be any man. He has to be God, you see. So wow, this whole promise to David being fulfilled, and then the Abrahamic covenant, which is the promise to the Jews that they little piece of land over there that everybody's arguing about actually does belong to them according to God's uh, deeds, and it's going to be the way he says, so uh, to be sure. And the new covenant ultimately, which is what referred to here, the promises that God will blot out our sins. Uh, the key player in all this is, is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the line of David. He's the Davidic king. That's Jesus. He's the promiser or the guarantor of the land to the Jews, obviously. He's Jewish. The king of the whole universe is going to reign from Jerusalem, and he's Jewish. I'm thinking the Jews are pretty going to be okay with their land over there. They're going to get it. It doesn't matter what the Antichrist or anyone else says. And then, of course, since he is the, the Messiah, he comes to ratify the greatest covenant in the whole Bible, as far as I'm concerned, which is the new covenant, guaranteeing forgiveness of our sins. He ratifies it with his own blood. All, all covenants were ratified with blood, but usually that of animals. In the case of the new covenant, no animal was sacrificed. The one that was sacrificed was none other than God's son himself, who became a man. So we celebrate that this, every Christmas. Who became a, a human being, grew up to be a man, to die to take our place, whose blood is the only answer that we have to what will you, what, what, how would we possibly go to heaven? We have to put our faith in him and what he's done for us, and his blood to cleanse us from, from our sins. And so this, this new covenant is what we're going to be spending our time on this morning, but don't want to just gloss over completely these, these two other ones. The Davidic covenant was a universal covenant. The, the one who's coming in the line of David to reign in Jerusalem is going to reign not only over Jerusalem or over the Jews, but over the whole world and over the whole universe. So the Bible teaches clearly and plainly in many places that God is going to rule the universe from Jerusalem on the throne of David. God himself, Jesus, is going to be doing that. Not reigning from heaven. He's always reigning in heaven. He's been reigning from earth. That is the future of humanity. That is the future of all existence. So that is where we're headed. And of course, the Bible clearly does teach this. So that king, his coming, he's already come. And then the Abrahamic covenant guaranteeing that the Jews would possess their land. And then the new covenant, which was a national promise. And then, most importantly for us, the new covenant, which is a personal promise. That God will forgive your sins and my sins based upon our faith in his son. But who cares if the Jews possess their land and and uh, the Davidic king is reigning over the universe from Jerusalem, if we're in hell, of what matter does it? It doesn't matter at all. If we haven't had our sins dealt with, and since Jesus didn't pay for our sins, we're having to pay for our sins in total separation from God. And so of what good is the other covenants? They don't matter. It, the new covenant, it's the operative one. Sin, ladies and gentlemen, is our number one problem. It is what's wrong with our government, it is what's wrong with your family. It is what's wrong with your marriage. It is what's wrong with your personal life. It is what's wrong in the hospitals. It is what's wrong internationally. It's what's wrong in government. It's what's wrong in business. It's what's wrong. Sin. If you take sin away, all of these things, all of our problems immediately cease. They immediately do. Just simply stop sinning. There'll be nothing to prove. There'll be nothing to lie about. There'll be nothing, no one stealing. There'll be no one cursing. There'll be no one doing anything of all the things that we have problems with. Just simply stop the sinning. It's the one thing we cannot do. And we're going to see why. 
Sin is the number one problem. If there's anything that the Bible makes abundantly clear, it's the fact that people, for all time, everywhere, are sinners. It also makes it abundantly clear that it's not just a matter of our practice or our attitude or our thought life or what we say. It actually, sin is actually something far deeper than that. Sin is our nature. Nature is who you are. Not just the way you think, not just the way you act, it's the fabric of who you are. The Bible makes it clear, sin is the fabric of who we are outside of Christ. We have to understand this, it, it, or we can't understand anything else of what, what God has done for us. It is a fabric of who we are. It's far more than just how we act or how we speak. It is a matter of our, of our nature. Look at, look at what it says here in Jeremiah. We always think the devil is bad, and he is. We always think there's a lot of dangerous things in the world, but here's what you need to know. Your biggest problem, your biggest problem, goes everywhere with you. It's your heart. It's your biggest problem. It's your greatest nemesis, not the devil. Notice, the devil is a second fiddle here. The heart is deceitful above all things. The devil only could wish he could be as deceitful as your heart. Again, you know, the whole issue in our society said, just follow your heart. Please do not do that. Do not do that. Believe what the scriptures say. Your heart is extremely deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? God is not offering you a cure for your heart. God is offering you a new heart. That's why we come to him, not for a cure. And by the way, not to give him your heart. What would he want with a filthy thing? I know we say that, and I know what we mean when we say that, but it's sort of theologically incorrect. He doesn't want your heart. He wants to give you a new heart. He, you have nothing to offer him. He has something to offer you. And let's see why that's so. So, so first of all, it, it's an intrinsic thing, right? It's not just what I think and the way I act. It's who I am, isn't it? In fact, the Bible says it's, it's more than that. It's just, it, it affects everything that we are, and in fact, it puts us all in the same classification. There is no one righteous. Well, you haven't met my grandmother. I don't need to. I am familiar with the scriptures, and I can tell you what the scriptures say about her. She's not righteous. Not even one. Are we willing to accept God's pronouncement on our culture and on who we are? Because that's where it starts. So and, and, until we come to the place where we say we don't know and God does, then, then we can't get to the place where God can fix us. So we have to first say, okay, you're right, God. No one's righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands there is none who seek for God. Oh, I know somebody who seeks for God. It's because God enabled them. No one naturally does this because intrinsically we're sinners. Intrinsically we're like Adam and Eve running from the Father, hiding from him. That's who we are. It's, it's our nature. All, notice how many? All have turned aside, turned away. And together they become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. You know, the whole statement, we've said it many times here and people are sick of it, but I'm saying it anyway. Uh, <laughs> Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer the Bible has is, there aren't any good people. Bad things don't happen to good people. They don't, because there's not any good people. There never has been, apart from Adam and Eve, very early on in the garden. Not another good one. So, if bad things happen to bad people, that makes sense. That makes good sense. And that's what we got going on. So, 
So it, it is our nature, it's who we are, it's collective, it's 100%, it's universal, we're all sinners, we're all lumped into one, one basket because that is so, so true. Again, uh, our sinfulness is endemic, it's systemic, it's not a matter of education, it's not a matter of better environment, it's not a matter of better choices, it's, it's uh, a sinner trying not to sin is the same as a fish wanting to be an elephant. He can't do it. His nature is to be a fish. And no matter how much he tries to be an elephant, it won't, he will not succeed. A sinner can't stop sinning. They cannot. It is their nature. It's not just the way they think. It's not just the way they act. It is the fabric of who they are. And the reason for that is, is explained, or at least beginning so, by understanding what this verse says in particular about sin. First of all, it says a great thing for those of us who are now under the new covenant. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is awesome news for all who come to Christ. That the power of sin has been broken. The consequences of sin have been dealt with on the cross. The power of sin has been broken. You're now free in Christ to be everything God wants you to be. That is super good news. That's why they call it gospel, good news. But bad news here is for those who have not come to Christ. Notice what it says here. The law of the spirit of life in Christ, it's a law has set you free from the law you used to be under, unless you haven't come to Christ. Which is also a law, right? The law of sin and of death. The reason why we are intrinsically, endemically, systemically sinners is because sin is a law in our lives when we're outside of Christ. Sin is a law. What do I mean by a law? Well, it's not a law in the sense of the speed limit. I don't know if you notice that if you pass a 55 mile an hour speed sign driving 70, unless there's a cop there, nothing happens. It's not like a laser beam comes out and you die right there or your car is disabled or something like that. It's not like that. Because it, it's, it's not self-enforcing. Unless there's the black and white, you know, DPS guy who turns around in your rear view mirror, you're good, right? I'm not encouraging to speed. I'm just saying... The law of sin is not like that. The law of sin is self-enforcing. It's not like a written man-made law. It is an intrinsic law, much in the same way as the law of gravity. Think of it this way. There's not signs up, by the way, anywhere that you say this, that where people say, make sure you obey the law of gravity. Why don't they hang a sign like that? Because they don't need to. From East Texas, you'll only do it once. You'll only do it once. Do you know that the gravity doesn't have a, an enforcer because it doesn't need one? It, it enforces itself. It enforces itself. You don't think it works? Step off of a building. Jump out of an airplane. You'll find out. You're not an exception. The law is 100%. Likewise, so is the law of sin. It is self-enforcing. You can't break it. You can't undo it because it is a law intrinsic in who we are. Uh, again, gra gravity is great. Think of it this way. Uh, gravity is great now because the Earth is spinning hundreds of miles an hour and we're not being flung out into the uh, interstellar space because of gravity. So I, I'm in favor of gravity, aren't you? But what if this afternoon we decide to flap our arms and fly to Alaska for a couple of days? Gravity's going to stop that, isn't it? So all of our fun is being destroyed by gravity. And we can't flip a switch and say, you know, I like gravity today, but for this afternoon, I'm going to flip a switch and gravity's going to be off. No, why? Because gravity's a law. We have no control over it. It controls us. 
It's intrinsic in who we are. It's intrinsic in our existence on this planet, and for the most part, it's a good thing. Well, think of that in the same way as sin. The law of sin is the same kind of law. It's great when you want to indulge and be stupid. But as soon as you want to stop it, guess what? Guess what? That's why the alcoholic can't stop drinking, the drugger can't stop drugging, the sinner can't stop sinning. They're addicted to it. It's who they are. It's it's our nature, you see. A sinner can't stop sinning any more than you can flip a switch and stop gravity. It's a law within you. It holds you as much as the gravity holds us to the earth. The law of sin holds us to itself. There's no escaping it. There's not a trajectory like gravity that we can get outside of it. The law of sin is just that way. You don't own it. It owns you. And how do I know that? Try stopping. So from this point on, I'll make a pronouncement over. All you people will never sin again. There's my power. I can, I can do the sign of a cross, I guess. Is that going to work? What if I threaten you? Bodily harm. Nope. Didn't we all? How many, any parents, did that work for you? With your kids? Stop it or else. And your kid never did another thing wrong after that. I want to speak to you, by the way. We can write a book. Make a lot of money. You got some kind of formula. I don't know what exists, but man, no. Why? Because your kids are sinners. Yeah, you can curtail some of it, but you're not going to stop it, and you can't stop what goes on internally. Our sins are on all levels, psychologically, mentally, physically, uh, emotionally. They're they're everything because, like I said, it, it is our nature. It owns us. It controls us. And if you think it doesn't, try stop. Just try stopping. You can't. Because it is, you're not in control. It is. Likewise, the, the law of gravity, like I said, holds us to the earth, and sin holds us to itself. I mean, it's in this, think of it this way. Here's another law for you. The law of hunger. We're going to be eating after this, and you're all invited to stay with us and eat a fellowship meal. We're going to be eating uh, Thanksgiving slash Christmas meal because we want to make sure that you didn't get enough weight gain during you know, Thanksgiving, so Christmas is still a couple weeks away, so we want to bridge that gap. Um, hunger is a law. How do I know it? It's an intrinsic law, just like, just like gravity, just like sin, because you obey it, don't you? Stop being hungry. Can you do that? I'm not hungry right now. You want to know why? I ate a big breakfast. And I, know, I can smell, I don't know if you can, the food coming next door, so I can wait. But I cannot disobey that law very long. Isn't there one of our big problems? I can't stop eating. Thirst also is a law. It's a law. You obey it. You can't stop being thirsty if you haven't drank. You can't stop being hungry if you haven't eaten. You can't do it. Oh, if you, okay, well, let me put it this way. If you can stop being hungry and stop being thirsty, then I will believe you when you say that I can, you can stop sinning. Otherwise, why should I believe you? Because it's, these things are laws for us. And, and so listen, listen to Paul. Paul, by the way, uh, writer of Romans. Here's, here's Romans chapter, uh, chapter 6, chapter 7, I'm sorry, verses 21 through 25. Paul, of course, is this man steeped in the scriptures. His education level is tremendous, just many letters after his name as far as understanding the Bible. He's going to make a statement here to show us, writer of the New Testament, right, a large portion of it. A, a revered man for all the right reasons, just a, a godly man, and, and we owe so much to him and to his theology. Here we have it, God uh, blessing it by inspiring it, putting it in the New Testament we call the book of Romans. I'm sorry, the book, I keep going there. It is the book of Romans, chapter 7. So, so, so if there was a man 
who could himself get himself up by his own bootstraps and not sin. I don't know about y'all, but I'm thinking it's Paul. I'm thinking it is. Listen to his lament. Sounds like Paul's no better than me. So I find this law, there's the word, right? At work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Sound like any day you've ever had before? For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Boy, he knew it. He memorized it. He studied it. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. I know it's the right thing to do. I can't do it. Paul's no different than you and me. Sounds like any given day for me right there. What, what a wretched man that I am. Yeah. How out of control I am. How miserable. How I thought my life and I could make things. No, no, no. You're a prisoner. You're a slave to sin. It owns you. It's mopping the floor with some of us, unfortunately. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God. There's the answer who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the only answer. So you don't have an answer within yourself because systemically, endemically, you're a sinner. And, and something that's broken can't fix itself. And don't come to me to fix you because I'm just as broken as you are. That's why we have to have a Savior, see? See, the, speaking of by, by the law that Paul knew very well, God's always speaking of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had no power to help him stop sinning. It's one of the things you need to understand about the law of sin within our lives. There's nothing, because it's inside of us, nothing outside of us can make us stop. There's no law that I can impose or that the world can impose on us to make us be stop sinning. You can't do it because it's coming from the outside and this, the, this law of sin is an internal thing. Nothing in external can stop it. No threat, no pressure, no power. No outside force, listen, including including God, can stop you from sinning. Hear me on that? No threat from God. He's been, he's talking about the, you know, the threats, we, threats we make our kids and everything else. There is no threat compared to the threat of God's law. Because the penalty of God's law is eternal death in a place called hell. There is not a bigger threat than eternity. Not a bigger threat than torture forever and ever and ever. There's not a bigger one. No, I kill you, put you in the ground six feet under, no big deal. Eternity, though, is a way bigger deal. But not even the threats of God, and believe me, he's not just making threats, he's making promises, right? Of the Ten Commandments that we all know, but we don't keep, not even the threats of God can stop the sinful nature that is within me. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because it's imposed from the outside, you see. Well, I see the Ten Commandments, and by the way, you can memorize them, Paul did. You can meditate on them. You can uh, uh, beat yourself into submission, hopefully to stop sin in your life. It won't work. It won't work. Until you submit to the one who can rescue you, who delivers you, there's no power within you that can stop this thing. If, if the commandments of God can't stop you, nothing can. The old covenant, right, couldn't stop us from anything. And, and all it could do was show our need. So you put the Ten Commandments on the wall, it just shows how many times I'm breaking them. That's all it does. Shows how bad I am. Doesn't do anything for me to make me good. There's no power in it to change me because, again, intrinsically, systemically, I'm a sinner. I have to be rescued. That's why Jesus is called a Savior, not a helper. 
saving us, not, not helping us. So all, the old covenant just simply demonstrates how we're in need of nothing but mercy and grace and unmerited forgiveness. We can't do with anything else. We can't give us one more set of rules to follow because we can't keep them. We never will. Thus the need for the new covenant. Sin is the fabric of who we are, and unless the Savior sets us free, we're, we're goners. So the new covenant, though, fixes us forever. You familiar with the pig? Anybody ever own pigs? Anybody ever been around wild pigs? You read the story about the lady who got killed by a pig here in Texas just recently? Well, they're serious business. Pigs are nasty. Pigs are nasty. Pigs are ugly. Pigs are stinky. Pigs can be ferocious. Pigs can be awful. They can be mean. You can forgive a pig for being a pig, but guess what? You're going to have to forgive him again and again and again. You understand the nastiness and the meanness and the ferociousness of what it is to be a sinner? Sinners are capable of anything sinful. They don't, oh, I could never do that. Oh, boy. Watch out. Sin is in control, and you're not. We're nasty. We're mean. We're ferocious. Forgiving us, listen, doesn't fix us. Not only is there a need to be forgiven, and I'm not saying there isn't. Boy, is there. Wow. We have to be changed, you see. We're a pig. And we go right back to being a pig. But, but I, I not only need forgiveness, I need complete conversion. Change it to something else. This is why the Bible underscores things like being born again. Why? Because your first birth turned you into a sinner and leaves you a sinner. You must, as Jesus said, be born again. You must be converted. You must have a heart transplant, and that is exactly what the new covenant promises. We've been talking about it all this time and haven't actually read the promise that God made, so the, the reference that, that Zechariah makes so wisely here to the forgiveness of sins. He's referring to this new covenant. He's so excited. Now, now the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant that we could never be a part of because our sins couldn't be dealt with and our nature couldn't be changed is going to be changed because of the new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord. So this is not Jeremiah's opinion. This is God. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. So it's totally on God. It's not people coming to him and saying, let's make a deal, God. Let's work something out. Okay, I'll do this and you do it. No, this is unilateral. This is just God doing it. I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. See, where was the law before that? Where it is on your wall. Where it is, for them, they would put it, I mean, you could sleep with it, you can, you can put it under your pillow, you can put it on the wall, you can do whatever. But the problem is our hearts, you see. Our hearts are unconverted. Our hearts are unchanged. He's given us a new heart. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Just God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because I'm a good God, not because you're good people, because obviously you're not. I'm not only going to just forgive you, but I'm going to, you're going to cease to be a pig. 
You're going to be converted into something very different. You're going to have heart surgery, and that's why the New Testament holds out things like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Why? Because the old one was no good. God doesn't offer you a turning over of a new leaf or some kind of, I don't know, new program. That is not Christianity. That's not biblical truth. It's not one more program or one more set of rules to follow because you couldn't do the first set. So why add another one? No, it's a conversion. New creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For who? Anyone in Christ. It's not enough to know that Jesus is, Christ is the Savior. He has to be your Savior, you see. You have to doubt, have you dealt with that? So he's put forth as the Savior, the rescuer, the converter, the heart surgeon of God. But it's not a matter of whether you believe that is true or not. It's, a, it's really ultimately a matter of have you dealt with it? Have you accepted him to as many as received him? To them he gave the right to become the children of God. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Have you accepted him? You have to accept him. You have to deal with him. So the new covenant is important. Why? Because it's everything for us. It's everything, not just forgiveness. It's change. It's conversion. It's heart surgery. I'm going to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes as we think for a moment about what God has said to us today. Have you dealt with the Savior? Have you trusted him? We celebrate this time of year, his birth. And it is truly something to celebrate that God has become one of us, taken on flesh, so that he could live a life we couldn't live. He could die a death that we earned to pay a penalty for our sin, not just to have us forgiven, but to have us changed from being a child of the devil to a child of God, to pass from death to life. That's a change. To pass from those who are under the law of sin to who are under the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus that has set us free. Have you trusted him today? I pray that you would. I pray that you would reach out to him. It says, as many as call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you want to be rescued and saved from your sinful nature? You must call upon him. You must seek him. You must call to him today to save you. Lord, I thank you that you're the Savior. I thank you, God, that you didn't come to help us because we were beyond help, but that you came to reach out, to pull us out of where we were, to change us and convert us, and forgive us and blot out not only the things that we have done, but to change us into new people, to be a new kingdom and um, new children born again into your kingdom. Thank you that you have done this. Thank you that all who trust you, that you work that work in them. Lord, I thank you that as your scripture says, you're able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through you. I pray for the person who has not come to God through you today. God, that they would come that way. They would trust you. They would trust your saving work and your blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for us and rescuing us from this body of sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.